over the course of 20 years, I have found there are five types of investors. And four out of the five don't want their money back. But part of it is a challenge because typically most everybody goes to the fifth type, which is the only one of the five that want their money back and the only one of the five that are least likely to ever invest in a movie. Well, my approach is let's go through the other four people first. And if we have exhausted all those options, then we'll go to number five. Pixar Filmmaker Stories podcast brought to you by JB Audio Post-Production. In this episode, I spoke to an indie director, Steve Balderson. Currently based in Los Angeles, Steve attended film school at California Institute of the Arts, quickly launching his career in independent movies from there on. His second film, Firecracker, was critically acclaimed, winning a special jury award on Roger Ebert's list of 2005 Best Films. He has since made a film nearly every year under his production company, Dikanga Films, as well as running a film production course on how to find investors. He recently released his own book called Filmmaking Confidential, Secrets from the Independent Filmmaker. With over 20 years of experience behind him, Steve has a wealth of knowledge to share. So keep your ears peeled for some practical advice that could benefit your own films. But before we dig into the episode, I have some exciting news to share. We are running our first ever podcast competition. Steve is giving away not one, but two audible copies of his book to our listeners. The giveaway will kick off on Wednesday, 4th of November. So make sure you follow JB Audio Post Production on Instagram and Facebook to find out how to enter the draw. Now, here are Steve's stories. I think I became a director because I couldn't do anything else very well. I mean, I could barely make a sandwich. <laughs> okay, so um, I was maybe seven or eight years old. My grandfather gave me an old Betamax video camera and I roped my siblings into being the characters in, in whatever I was creating. And it just felt real to me. It felt like home. It just clicked. And I just sort of did that for, through my schooling years. And then I went to film school at California Institute of the Arts for three years. And then I quit for a number of reasons and went home and said, I'm ready to make my first real film. And my dad said, great, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, credit cards, you know, because this was 1997 and independent film was doing that. You could actually finance a film on your credit card and then make it and then sell it. And so for, to me, it didn't seem like a very crazy idea. But he said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What you need to do is hire a consultant, make a business plan, treat it like a business uh, go and find investors. And we did that. Uh, that film went and premiered at Cannes during the festival. And we sold and licensed it all over the globe. And because that was successful, that model, we just repeated that model. And I made my second movie. And I, at this point, you know, was 22 or 3 years old living in Kansas. And I had no idea how rare any of this was. I was completely aloof to it. The lesson I learned on my first film was that we would have had a greater sale, even though we licensed it globally in almost every country. We didn't have any celebrities in it. So there were a, a number of higher studio distribution companies that said, we would love to release this, but we don't know how to market it without a, an actor that we know in it. So for my second film, I did that. I in incorporated, you know, famous people in my movie 
And then that film was Firecracker and then ended up on Roger Ebert's list of the best films that year. So because that was also successful, I just kept doing that for 20 years without realizing how weird that was or how, how rare it was. And along the way, you know, I learned a lot of things that I wish I would have known prior. You know, we were screwed by the distribution company for that film. And in hindsight, it's like that's one of the reasons why I wanted to put my book, Filmmaking Confidential, together because I thought, God, I wish I knew this beforehand. So when, you know, filmmakers are just starting out on their careers, they should know to be careful for these reasons. Everybody learns their own way. It could be a little bit like, you know, when you're a child and your parent says, don't touch the stove top because you might burn your hand. Well, if you haven't yet burned your hand, you don't know what that means. So one day you reach up and you burn your hand and you say, oh, that's what they were talking about. <laughs> you know, you don't really get it at the time. I live in Los Angeles. I, I lived in Kansas up until about four years ago. It's interesting because being a director, you can live anywhere, you know, because I've lived here for four years and only one of the films I've directed or been hired to direct was filmed here. The others were all shot elsewhere. So, you know, um, it's more expensive to live here. The lifestyle is a little bit more exciting. You know, I think I'm, I'm meant to be in an urban environment, but I didn't know that for a number of years. And living in Kansas has its benefits. You know, filming in places like that, that are rural, are fantastic because you don't need permits. You can, you know, block off the street and nobody cares. You know, you can sort of take over and make it your back lot, and it's amazing. You know, it's like this little town becomes your own Pinewood Studios. You could probably get law enforcement to help you at a local, smaller level, and you're not going to get the law enforcement in, you know, downtown, you know, London to help you. I mean, uh, the permit to shoot on the underground will cost more than your film. <laughs> so, like, you know, so what you need to do is just go to, you know, the place where they're excited to have you. And they welcome you and they say, oh, you'd like to film on our main street and we have to stop traffic? Great. <laughs> you know, you want that. You want that to happen. Steve discusses his various roles as a filmmaker and the importance of deciphering who is in control on a particular project. I see myself in the context of the film industry in a variety of ways. One is I have a production company that I can produce and direct the things I want to do. I not yet have produced something for someone else. But if, if a director came to me and asked me to produce something that they would direct, I, I'm open to that. It just hasn't happened yet. I am a freelance director. I can be hired to direct other people's movies, and I have. And I enjoy it. I mean, on, in one way, working for someone else or another producer, it, it's a challenge in the sense that my job is a translator visually. So my job would be to take the producer's vision and then use my skills to give them that. And it's a little bit less about what I want or what I see. It's more about how can I use what I have to give them what they see. I've heard, you know, a number of first-time directors struggle with that because they feel like they have to have their vision as part of it. And I, I think that sometimes that's necessary, but sometimes really it's your job to do what the producer wants. And if, if they want you to take a direction or a tone that isn't such a good idea, you know, my advice is always to voice that by saying, I think it's a mistake, but I'm happy to do whatever you want. 
So, you know, it, it, the buck stops with them. They need to make the decision. And, and if they want you to make the decision, then these are just conversations you, you have before you go into production. You know, find out who is in control. And then once you have defined who is in control, then you keep it that way throughout. I think that there are a number of people who make films because they're narcissists and they want to have masturbatory material to better their I don't know what. I've known those filmmakers and I don't understand that part of it, but I think it's a way to share a story, a part of the human condition. If I experience trauma and then figure out how to overcome it, I feel like I want to share that with the world in order to help other people overcome trauma. And not every movie of mine is really dark and heavy and, and full of drama. But for instance, I was in a, a terribly emotionally abusive relationship for 12 years. And when I was betrayed and got out of that, I had a romantic comedy that I was supposed to direct like the next month. And I had to remember what it was like to feel love. And it was the hardest thing to do at that time, but I also felt like it got me through. It was almost like my therapy to overcome what I had experienced that was so terrible. And then there's some really genuine and amazing emotion in a project like that. So when, when people see something that comes from a real place and has a message or it doesn't even have to have a message, it could really just be a slice of life moment about what's happening in the world with these people a lot of people can feel that if it's a, if it if it comes from a genuine place i've learned some lessons over the years about how it's not the meaning of life because i don't think that you can put that into a sentence but it's an understanding of frequency in the universe that's within all of us and i wanted to capture that which i have done in my new movie alchemy of the spirit which is about a man who wakes up and finds that his wife has died overnight and he keeps her body. And as he's creating this sculpture, she may or may not come back to life. And either he's hallucinating it or not, or she's actually there talking to him about what is the afterlife? How are all these human beings in the spirit connected? And so for me, it's like, I didn't set out to do this, but one of the people who saw an early cut said, God, what a beautiful homage to death. And this woman had a, her, one of her biggest fears was the fear of dying. And she said, after watching this movie, I no longer have that fear. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. And then she said, you know, somebody, a terminally ill person could benefit from watching this movie. And I thought, well, that's not why I went in to make this movie, but how, what a fascinating thing. And it's like, it, that's kind of cool to like be able to share something like that with the world. Ever been lucky enough to bump into David Lynch in an shop? Steve has quite a story to tell about the formation of his most recent film. Alchemy of the Spirit came about, uh, it was the very strangest 24 hours. I'll just tell you the whole story because it's insane. I have, over the course of the years, when images come to me, I sort of sketch them or I put them in a pile. And I don't know where whether that's for this project or a different project or something else. But I keep track of visual things that I think, oh, God, that's a really great shot or a really incredible moment. And so I collect them. And one morning... In, I think it was June of last year, I woke up and I learned that my mentor and good friend, uh, Eric Sherman, had just died. And it was one of those things, he 
helped me produce my first film. He was the consultant that I hired. I wasn't sad about his death. I felt empowered by it. And then I thought, out of nowhere, I must start painting now. And I got ready, and I, I got in an Uber, and I went to the art store, and I walked in Blick, which is an art store on Beverly or Melrose here in Los Angeles. And when I walk in, I feel these eyes staring sort of through me. There's these, like, crisp blue eyes coming at me from across the room. And it was this older man, and I felt this impact through my being. And then I, my first instinct was, well, who is this very strange person that's having this effect on me? And then I realized it's David Lynch. And I then realize that Eric, who had just died, introduced me to David Lynch in 1999. But at the time, it was only via fax machine because David didn't have a phone. And the only way to communicate with him was to fax back and forth. But we hadn't talked since then. And we never met in person. But there was this energy. And I went up to him, and he was walking by, and I said, David, I introduced myself, and the first thing he said was, it's so good to see you again. And I said, you too, because I felt like there was something else going on. And then I told him that Eric had just died, and we talked briefly about that, because Eric had gotten David's first film shown at the AFM because no one else would screen Eraserhead at the time. And so they had this sort of, like, connection. Eric and I had a connection, and then here David and I are having this weird psychic connection— and he goes away, and we just went about our business, and I left. And on the, wa- the ride home, all those images that I'd collected over the years prior just started falling into place like a jigsaw puzzle. And they just like click, 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 click. And then suddenly it was just like, boom, they are all part of this story, Alchemy of the Spirit. And when I got home, I called my friend Sarah Clark, who's an actress, and I said, Sarah, we're making a movie. And do you think your husband would be interested? She's married to the actor Xander Berkeley. And she said, you know, Xander just landed at LAX 30 minutes ago. Here's his number. Call him. So I call him up, and he says, can you meet me for coffee in 45 minutes? And I do. So this is like, this is like a four-hour window of life, okay? And I get back in the car, and I'm going to Beverly Hills to meet him for coffee, and I the story is still coming together. It's not even fleshed out yet. And I get there, and I'm telling him about it, and he's like, yes, we have to do this. And by the way, I have this 1800s mansion in Maine in the middle of the country, and it's sort of falling down, and it looks like a Tarkovsky film inside. And I say, well, we're filming there, you know? And he's like, great. And I go home, and I do the script and the storyboards, and I decide we're going to do it for no money, I mean, I did find some investors to pay for, like, you know, the, the basic essentials. But all the people who came about, th- the same day, my, my director of photography says, I'd like to produce this with you. And I said, great. So we basically, it, it was no different than when you're a kid and you go in the backyard with your friends and your camera and you make a movie. The only difference is that this time, even though there were eight of us, maybe, on set, we were all professionals, and we all have had, you know, experience in our craft. So the, the product was the most excellent thing that I've made in my life. And um, it's, I mean, it looks like a Caravaggio. I mean, it's unbelievable. The cinematography in it is, is incredible. The guy is a genius. Hanuman Brown Eagle is a genius. And uh, Xander Berkeley and Sarah Clark are great. Mink Stoll from all of John Waters' films plays this, the only other supporting part. 
And uh, we did it in two weeks. We shot every day except one, I think. I typically shoot less than 12 hours every day. It's not exactly 8 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night, but it's roughly, I like keeping the days short so that people can eat well, sleep well, um, especially if you're not being paid a lot of money. You want some of those comforts that you otherwise wouldn't get. You know, if you're getting paid to do a movie and you're there 14 hours, it's like, well, it's okay because you're getting paid. But, you know, when you're not, it's like, okay, let's make it fun. I want to say that, you know, I've had experience shooting things where it's just eight people and it didn't cost a lot of money. You know, what I found is that no matter the size of your budget, the same things happen. I mean, you still spend every dollar. You still have the same challenges. You don't have any more resources just because you have more money. There are still conflicts and still, you know, challenges to solve, regardless of the amount of money that you're spending. So it's, it's a total joy for me to be on a film set, whether it's a big deal or a little one. One of my favorite sayings is there is no such thing as a problem. There just isn't. The only thing that exists is your reaction to what someone else considers a problem. So, you know, when you get to set and you find out that, you know, you've, you've made this whole elaborate Hitchcockian uh, scene that's set in a barn and it's going to be your magnum opus for the film and you arrive on set to learn that the barn burned down last night. <laughs> you know, what do you do? You can either make the choice to argue about it, cry about it, or just move on, plan, yeah, ch- uh, fix the challenge, you know, where do you go? Evolve it, you know. And so it's, I think those those messages of, you know, just being tuned in and at one with the universe and all of awareness, I mean, it sounds a little woo-woo, but I, I love it. And I think it's helped me a great deal, at least. Now, get your pad and pen ready for the next part. Steve is about to unleash his words of wisdom on finance and promotion, which might just be the advice you need for your own film. You know, if you're trying really hard to raise money for your movie and you can't find it, you know, that's a lesson to teach you maybe you're looking for too much money or maybe you're looking in the wrong place or maybe there's a different story you're supposed to be making. You know, there are always things to just take notice of. And, you know, or if you're trying to get this actor to be in your movie and they're famous and they just won't do it, you know, and you just can't figure it out. Well, that's okay. Ask somebody else. You know, just like there's all these. If you try so hard to make your movie like and it's just not working, you will probably end up with a project you don't like or that isn't very good. My journey through the filmmaking world started when HD did not exist and we had to shoot on film. And there was a certain way you went about releasing your movie and sharing it and you sold it to certain people. And then they would distribute it in a certain way. I, I remember when we were in Cannes, there was talk about this new thing called DVD. And it, nobody thought it was going to take off because the VHS market was so significant. My second film was also shot on 35 millimeter, but it was about the time when HD started becoming better. And then my third film, I used the HVX 200 because it was like the first video camera that looked like film in a way. And then I evolved into the DSLRs. And, you know, it was it was beginning over the course of the next years to become something that was more tangible. And at the same time, the film industry and the, the means of distribution were evolving. So I had to evolve with it in order to continue making movies. And then now it has evolved yet again, because now there are streaming platforms all over the place. 
and all of them want content. And it's almost like you can make a project now and get it to a platform and share it with the world no matter what it is. And, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, just because you made a film didn't mean anybody was going to see it. And on the same breath, you know, because there's so much more content and so much, so many more platforms, your movie might not be seen by as many people as it would have been 15 years ago, but it's still going to have an audience and it will still find an audience. You know, every I, I feel like an audience will find a movie no matter where it is. It can be anywhere. The The only reason a movie doesn't succeed is because no one knows about it. So promotion and marketing are really, really key. Just because you've released your movie doesn't mean the distribution company is going to do any marketing for you. You know, I've, I've had films released in the UK, and sometimes they find an audience, but I realize that I better start telling people that they're there because it, you don't know to watch it unless you know it's an option. Otherwise, you may not ever find it. And in that regard, I've also learned over the course of the years that my experience with the film industry is if you tell an ordinary story, chances are it's not interesting. And if you tell a story that is what no one else is doing, chances are you will, you will stand out from the rest. Because, you know, if everybody's making a slasher film, which they sell well, you know, don't get me wrong, how would you do it that would be different than everybody else? You know, just try it. Maybe maybe it's successful, maybe it's not. But if you have a story about two guys driving across the country and they're going to discover that they're adults now, it may not be that interesting. Throw a few, like, crazy things in there, and I guarantee you that it'll be successful. When I began, I thought that industry executives could understand talent and have an imagination. And I was very saddened with the realization that many of them have no mental capacity to imagine anything. No matter whether you've got the best script in the world or the clearest storyboards or the fanciest team of people that tick all their boxes, they still have no idea how to imagine it in their heads. If you find a producer or a production company or a financier who has the ability to imagine something visually in their head, you have struck gold that is so rare. It's like Sylvester Stallone's story. You know, it's like he went and said, I'm going to be the next action star. And the industry said, no, you're short, you're ugly, forget it. And instead of being discouraged, he went home and he wrote a script and he put a team together and he made Rocky. And even after having been nominated for the Academy Award, he went around town again and said, I'm going to be the next action star. I just got an Academy Award nomination. And everybody said, no, you're short, you're ugly, forget it. And then he said, well, I'm, I don't need to prove it to you. I, he went home and made Rambo. You know, so it's like sometimes you just got to do it because a lot of people, they can't see it until they see it. And once they've seen it, then they say, oh, that's what you meant. But you go back to them for the next project. And that's what I found so irritating that you just, I, I've had to just deal with is they'll never get it. They'll never figure it out. So you just got to keep making movies somehow. I mean, there's, there are other things, too. It's, it's a little bit like that with actors also. You know, actors might think that your approach to something is something that isn't. And then they watch the movie, and it's like they have an out-of-body experience because they can't remember actually being there, even though clearly they're in the shot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Feeling bogged down by the challenges of filmmaking? Take a leaf out of Steve's book. Try not to see them as problems. 
One of the biggest challenges was, and I'm not going to name who or the project, but it was maybe the last week of working on this particular shoot, and one of those involved just turned and became terrible to deal with. One of those things that your choice as a director at that moment is to fire them, but you've already, you're almost done, and you've just got a couple things left to do. You know, part of me was prepared to just walk away and say, I will figure out a way to make this film out of what we have. But I thought, no, I mean, truly my internal motivation is this too shall pass. It's just a few more days. Just get through it. Put a smile on your face. If you don't feel like smiling, that's fine. But you don't have to voice any negativity, especially, you know, try to keep it, you know, sort of uplifting for the people on the team that are still present. You know, what was going on was not a secret, but being a leader, uh, you know, as a director, my job is to keep morale high, push through, make the work, finish the work, and get out of there as fast as possible. That was the most challenging because it was it was so close, you know, it was so close. Another one was we went through three or four different focus pullers. You know, it was like every four or five days, we would get another guy on the camera team, and he was just a total jerk and was rude to everybody, and then we'd get rid of him and get a new one, and then that guy was also a jerk, and then we'd get another one, and then that guy wrecked a car. Like, it was like, it was, he he borrowed a car and was going to run into town or something, and then because he was from a big city and we were filming in the Midwest on a gravel road, he didn't know how to drive slower on a gravel road, so the car ended up totaled in a ditch. And we're like, okay, what is this with focus pullers? But, like, I guess, you know, whatever. I mean, other than that, um, there have never been any big challenges. I've never shown up on set to find out the barn had burned down. <laughs> you know, like, for the most part, I've I've been very fortunate, but I guess it's also because I don't see the challenge as a problem. So, I, you know, typically either I don't see them or they really aren't there. There seems to be no tip or trick Steve doesn't have up his sleeve. Steve urges you to ask yourself, do you really need all that money for your film? We should do a totally separate talk on uh, how to find investors because I'm actually writing a second book about that. Over the course of 20 years, I have found there are five types of investors and four out of the five don't want their money back. And then I tell you who they are. I just, I go through the list and I'm like, this person, this person, here's their personalities, here's what we call them, here's how you find them, here's how you talk to them. And it is the easiest thing in the world to find financing for your movie. But part of it is a challenge because typically most everybody goes to the fifth type, which is the only one of the five that want their money back. And the only one of the five that are least likely to ever invest in a movie. But yet, that's where everybody goes first. Well, my approach is, let's go through the other four people first. And if we have exhausted all those options, then we'll go to number five. But out of 17 feature films, I think I've only gone to the fifth group once. Over the course of 20 years, I started realizing a pattern. I started saying, oh, that person is reminding me of this earlier investor I had on this other project. And then over the course of time, I just, I saw the repetitions of these types of people who were interested in investing in films. And so I started, it just clicked one day. And I thought, well, I'm going to approach this type of investor because they've done it in the past. 
not, not just the same person, but the same personality type. And then I found that was successful again. I studied NLP and took a lot of courses over the past five, six years and learned that linguistics and communication and talking with people make a huge impact. If you don't know how to speak their language, the way they process information, the whole purpose of communication is not the words that are coming out of your mouth. They're what the other person is hearing that makes it make sense. And so even if you sit down in the room, you've got the investor, they're sitting across from you, you finally have your chance. And if you talk to them in the wrong way, that you've just lost them. And it's just, it's every little step along the way matters. But if you do it and you're aware of it, then it's pretty easy. It takes a lot of time. I'm not going to say that you walk in the first meeting and they give you a check, but it's, it's pretty easy. There's a chapter in my book, in Filmmaking Confidential, about I had a friend who had raised almost $300,000 U.S. cash. And he just needed that extra little twenty or $30,000. i am like, dude, you have enough money already. You could make two movies for the amount you already have. So just go do it. And it's, it's just this thing about how they're frozen in budgeting their movie or how they, whatever the expectations are that keep them from doing it. I just, that's part of it also. You know, it's like, do you really need all that money? There's a chapter in my book called Top or Bottom. It's about budgeting. The whole industry typically budgets their movies in the most inefficient way. And it's called bottom-up. And they get software, you know, that tells them what you need to make your movie. And you plop in these numbers. And then at the end of the list, you find out that your film is going to cost $2 million. Well, if you do the reverse, which is what I do, is is top-down budgeting then you start with a number that you think you can raise, and then you deduct from it as you're making your budget. So, you know, if you need to spend 10000 on a DP and his camera and the lighting and whatever, you have to deduct that. And so then you only have whatever's left. Now, however, if you get that DP to donate his gear, then you can add some of that money back in. You know, and then you subtract from there. So a lot of people, I think that's one of the mistakes is that they budget backwards because, our, of course, our nature is in the world of credit cards. So we, we charge now and figure out how to pay later. Whereas if you use a debit system or cash, you know very well what's left. And if you really want that crane shot and you have to go and rent the equipment, is it really worth it? Because you could maybe achieve that the same way or in a different way you could achieve the same thing without spending so much money. I don't remember when it was, but I did realize at one point that if I don't know how to sell my movie, what market is going to watch my movie before I start filming it, then when you're finished, it's a little late to ask that question. So I've learned that before you even enter pre-production, before you finish the script, define your target market and direct every decision along the way to impact whether or not it fits that target market. Because if you know who will buy your movie, if you know who will see your movie, and the type of person that is, that will inform every decision along the way. If you wait until your movie is finished and you've already shot it, and then you try to pick your target market, it's too late. Worried about future of film? Steve reminds us that the current global challenges are only temporary, but it's also the perfect time to get creative and find unique and alternative ways to exhibit your film. The independent film world on a global stage, I think, is fine. 
In fact, it's getting better because we're getting more access to certain platforms and more ways to share our work. I find it ironic that some of my films, I mean, when I'm making a film, I'm not making it necessarily for release in the United States. You know, sometimes if my target market is French-speaking Europe, I don't think about what the U.S. is going to think about it. I mean, I learned that early on. I, when I made a satire of school violence, you know, which was my first film, before, you know, Columbine and before all these school shootings, the European market loved it because it was a subversive look at America and the state of American culture. But America did not like that. So, you know, the United States, it, it was released eventually, but it was a completely different thing. So I, I look at it as global uh, lifeline that isn't going to change. No matter what happens, people will still watch movies. You know, even if every person is on TikTok or, you know, Facebook or Instagram stories and they've got these ways to make movies, they're, they're not cinematic. They're not cinema. People will always want to watch a story that has been cinematically created with a crew, whether you've spent any money or not. There is something about cinema, regardless of how it's filmed, that will never go away, ever. It will evolve, but it will never die. The challenges, I think, during COVID at this moment are if you're impatient and you have to get your movie out tomorrow, then you have to deal with things like drive-in theaters and ways to go about it that are different. If you decided to make the choice to just be patient, then you just wait a year and resume as you would normally because it's not forever. It's a temporary challenge this moment. You know, we have global catastrophe in our history of human beings on and on and on. I mean, this is a cycle that we just move through. So it will resume at some point, and perhaps that's the time to release your movie. Now, if, if you're hungry and you need to put food on the table and you have to make a living and, you, and this is the only way to do it, then you think of it in a creative way. You know, how can you show your film on the side of a building? Uh, you could even do sort of like, uh, they used to call it barnstorming. You could take your movie on a tour and you could do 15 cities over the course of two months and on Friday night this week, you're in this city, and then you're going to drive to the next city, and you're going to have outdoor screenings with social distancing, and you're going to arrange, whether it's at a drive-in theater or maybe it's in the courtyard of a medieval castle, whether it's on the side of a cemetery wall. You know, it just depends on what is your movie and the theme of your movie, and then how could you incorporate the way to exhibit that movie that meets the movie and make it a unique experience, a different one. You know, have some of the performers there to perform, make it a show, just like a musician has this sort of like production, you know, but the movie is the centerpiece, but you could also have all this other stuff going on so that people will want to come to it. You know, I don't know if I would drive to a, a cemetery to watch a movie, but I would probably drive to a cemetery to watch a movie if it was a ghost-related film and also there were, you know, some acts you know, some performers, some uh, maybe there was also a band to sing afterwards, you know, things like this. Then it becomes an event. And then, in fact, I'm, I'd probably spend more money to go to an event like that because I'm getting something else. So you have one of those. And if you've made a low budget film, you've made your money back in two months based on, you know, the, the exhibition. I mean, it's creative solution solving. You might even try that after the pandemic. You know, you might even try alternative ways to get noticed, regardless of what the rest of the world is doing. Well, we had quite a crash course from Steve on this episode. If you enjoyed listening to Steve talk, check out his book, Filmmaker Confidential, available to purchase on Amazon. 
now for some final tips on festivals. Avoid paying those submission fees. I believe that film festivals are absolutely important for a variety of reasons. One is it's a great place to share your work. It's also a wonderful place to meet other like-minded creative filmmakers. Even if you're just meeting a bunch of other directors, there are also other people there, actors and crew people and musicians and all sorts of people that you will meet. You can go see their movies. Maybe you can collaborate on something together someday. And I, rec- I say every film festival is special in its own regard. You don't have to go to the biggest of the best of Cannes and Venice and Ber- the Berlinale and, you know, Toronto and Sundance and, you know, all these places. You don't need them per se. And I've had friends who have had their films in those festivals that never found distribution. So just because your film is showing there doesn't mean you're going to win the lottery. It just means that you're in that film festival, so you better make it, you know, worth something. The other thing I will say is that my second film was the opening film of the Chicago Underground Film Festival. And it was in a theater that I think sat 1,000 seats. And the tickets to get in were, I don't know, $10 or $12. And it sold out. And that screening brought the film festival $15,000 or $12,000. And I didn't see a cut of that. So when that happened, I encourage other filmmakers to never pay submission fees for film festivals. And now sometimes they say no, but I, I, I ask every time, will you waive the submission fee? If I get accepted, I am happy to pay it at that time because I do support your organization. But I also know that if I sell out that theater because I do my own marketing, you are going to get all the cash from all of those tickets. And if you want me to pay the submission fee, then I want 50% of the box office for everyone that buys a ticket to see my movie. And oftentimes, they won't want to do that. (laughs) So typically, they will waive the submission fees because they don't want to split that ticket revenue with you. But I think that it's absolutely imperative for independent filmmakers to be given a shared part of the ticket sales for their film at that festival because the people who are coming to see it are the independent filmmakers, fans, friends, associates, you know, their followers, whatever. And it's not just, they're not going because they're, part they're interested in the festival it's like each filmmaker brings in a packed house and they did all the work so you better waive the submission fee in exchange for that because i'm happy to let you keep all the ticket sales but i don't want to go broke submitting to every film festival and that's one thing that i think is an important thing to share with people because typically you think you do have to pay the submission fees and then thousands and thousands of dollars later you realize that you're broke and you've only gotten into a half of them (laughs) or something like that so I say, why not ask? Let them decide. You don't need to decide. I don't need to decide for them. Find out. Maybe they will waive it. Maybe they won't. I mean, I like going to Cannes and, you know, Rain Dance and, you know, the bigger festivals. But I also love going to the really weird ones in the middle of nowhere. You know, oftentimes, I oh God, I went to this town. It was, did you ever see the movie Waiting for Guffman? It's a comedy from the 90s. Uh, Christopher Guest directed it. It's about this very, very small town putting on this play, and they think that they're going to Broadway. Like, it's like they have this, like, whatever. So I go to this town, and this film festival is the silliest, smallest little thing, but they are treating it like it's Cannes or, or like, Tribeca or Toronto or, like, whatever. They're treating it like this massive thing, and it's so entertaining and enjoyable and funny and ironic and amazing, but you also get to meet a lot of really interesting people. And, you know, I had a friend who went to 
some film festival in the middle of nowhere that no one has ever heard of. And one of the people that were on the jury of that festival financed his next movie. So you never know who you're going to meet at any of these places. So I recommend going to all of them because it's an easy excuse, you know, to travel and visit cultures. You may not otherwise go there, but if, if you have the excuse to go, you might as well just go. hope you enjoyed this episode. It was so interesting to have a chat with him. I learned so much and his willingness and openness to share his 20 years experience with others is a great example of what we want this podcast to be. Don't forget that we are running a competition with a chance to win one of the two copies of Steve's book. Make sure you follow JB Audio Post Production on Facebook and Instagram and join the Filmmaker Stories Facebook group where I will announce the competition and the details on how to answer it. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, make it known, spread the word, subscribe and rate it. Till next time.